Good morning. It's good to see you here. I don't know about you, that's the second time I've heard that song. First time was last night. Anybody hear that before? A few of you. I had a gentleman who was sitting behind me last night who um, bellowed this song out. And I thought, he has got to be up front. I mean, just a beautiful voice. But uh, I listened to some of those words and I think, man, uh, generations behind us, I think, had a whole lot better way of saying things at times. The beauty of, of, of the language and how they use that. So neat. I was sitting here listening to all the different songs and the words of these songs and a prayer of less and um, just realizing how God has woven this service together, how he orchestrates everything. Some of these songs were picked months ago before Mike Lukens went on a sabbatical. He knew what we were going to be talking about. Lord knew what we were going to be talking about today. And he just puts it all together to kind of accentuate and highlight certain things for us. Today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 24. So if you want to turn there, um, there's going to be two things that I'm going to try to highlight to you to help you to see as we go through this story. Remember, as we've been studying the book of Acts, we're understanding that it's largely history. It's telling us something of the early days of the church. But the reason or a reason why God is doing that is so that we might learn from that and we might find within that then something that applies to us, that affects us today. We're going to be looking at uh, Paul in a um, courtroom type situation. This could fit into uh, like, uh, what is it, Law and Order or some of these series that are on TV. This is one of those things that, that could easily fit into a context like that. It's the story of Paul and what's going on with him. And we're going to see some things about God. And two of those things that we're going to see, one is that God is in control. We've already been seeing that in the last number of chapters. But that's going to really be repeated here today. The second thing that we're going to see is that Paul points to the resurrection. And there's a motivating factor, or an impact that happens on our lives as we consider all of that. So hopefully we'll, we'll do justice to that too. But um, I have here in my hand, uh, if you were here with us last week, uh, Mark just introduced this a bit to you. Just a little tool that you can take and you can begin to think about what God's been doing in your life and write some of those things down because it's not just Paul's story that we're talking about here, but God's repeating that in yours as well. And there's things about it, hopefully, that again, as we look at, you'll be able to identify with and say, Lord, that, that's what you're doing in my life too. Or that's what I want to trust you for anyways and, um, and believe him in this. So uh, I'll turn here. I missed this last... Um, in chapter 9, verse 15 of Acts, you'll recall this here. This was after when, when uh, Paul was blind, remember, coming up on the road to Damascus. And, and the Lord says to Ananias, I want you to go talk to him. I want you to lay hands on him so he can receive his sight. And, and he says, uh, you sure about this, Lord? You, you remember this? We were, we were talking about this before. Yes. And the Lord says, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So the Lord has told Ananias, this is what Paul is going to do. This is how I'm going to use him. 
And as we've been going through from chapter 9 all the way now to chapter 24, we have been seeing this unfold for us. We've actually seen him arrive at different locations. And by practice, he would go to the synagogue, which is where the Jews gathered. And he would begin to share Christ with them from the Old Testament, talking about how it pointed to him and then saying, well, here he is. This is the one. Put your trust in him. Sometimes he got a little bit of a warm reception, at least for a while, sometimes an instant reaction of no way, but eventually it became a no way, and he had to say, hey, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. So as we've gone through this uh, story, we've seen three part, or two parts of the third, that is, he's been to Gentiles and he's been to Jews, but it, you'll notice there it says, and to kings. We haven't seen that happen yet. But now the story is going to turn towards that. And he's not leaving Gentiles, he's not leaving Jews, but God is also including kings. And I, I look at this and I think, God, you're such a gracious God because you reach out to everybody. And the way that you do that is often so different than what we would expect, what we would think. And maybe that's true for Paul here too. He was hoping to go to Rome. Do you remember that as, as Mark was taking us through that? I, I plan to go there, but everybody is telling me that this belt that I'm wearing, like the guy who's wearing this, he's in for trouble. That's, that's the story that I'm getting. But I'm okay. I'm willing to go. And even if it means giving him my life, I, I'm okay with that. But probably didn't think that by going to Rome, what it meant was that he was going to be standing before Caesar. That he would have government officials that, that most believers weren't going to have access to. But God was going to slot him in. God was going to bring him into that, uh, that environment. And we see that the household of Caesar actually hears the gospel. Later on, Scripture tells us this. So no surprise that God always does what he says he will do, right? We can count on that. And we know that God is in control of things so he can bring those about. What he says he will do, he actually does. So let's look then in chapter 24, and we'll pick this up here. First nine verses as we go through here is um, Paul is facing an accusation. Here's what they're saying is true about him. And this is serious business because as he now is facing uh, Roman rule and Roman uh, justice, if you want to call it that, I say it in quotations because it wasn't always just. But that's what he's facing and so we pick it up then in verse 1, it says, Now after five days, Ananias the high priest, different individual than what we were talking about in chapter 9, but Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus, and these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So they're going to lay it out. This is the prosecution. We're going to lay out our, our case before you, and we think that it's sufficient. You're going to kill this guy on our behalf. That's what they're looking for. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, See that, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places most noble Felix with all thankfulness. You, you should be going like this right now. Okay? <laughs> you, you, ever, you ever have someone talk to you and you just kind of feel that sicky like, Oh, please, like, ah. I should have changed my tone. Seeing that through you, we enjoy great peace and prosperity, right? Like, this is how I should have done it, just for emphasis on it. It's gagging. He's trying to butter this guy up. He's trying to smooth it out here with Felix, who's going to be the judge. He's the one who makes the decision. This is all a lie, just so you know. 
<laughs> in two years, by the time we finish this chapter, we're going to find that Felix will leave and another guy will take his place. Festus will come in. And that's not Festus, the guy on Gunsmoke, just for you old timers. Okay. I know it goes way back there, but some of you young people, that went over your head. But Caleb says things that some of you old timers, it goes over your head too. So tit for tat, right? In two years, he'll be recalled. And the reason he'll be recalled is because he will, um, in a mob disturbance between the Jews and the Gentiles, he'll go in with his soldiers and he'll kill a bunch of Jews and they'll get upset and they'll complain to Caesar and Caesar will recall him. We'll also see by the end of this chapter that he's actually wanting for Paul to give him some money. He's going to hold his hand out there. So all this stuff of how we enjoy such great peace and we enjoy this prosperity that's being brought to this nation by your wonderful foresight, you're just able, no, it's not even true, but he's buttering them up. He's trying to get him to be, to be um, uh, leaning towards our case and, and, and bring down the gavel and say, yep, you guys are right, we're going to kill this guy. And so he goes on with this. He says in the verse 4, Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg to you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. So he lays out, this guy, by the way, is a, a Roman, and he's a, like a lawyer. And he's been hired by these uh, Jewish elders to come down in a Roman court and to present their case. And he lays out the charges before him. Now these are serious. He says here that we found him as a plague. He's a, he's a creator of dissension. That was something that whoop, a Jewish uh, uh, um, authority would have, would have raised their attention on that. What? That's not allowed. Because if there's dissension going on and that stirs up, word's going to get back to Caesar and guess what? My neck is on the line, which is actually what's going to happen in two years. So he's paying attention to this and he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Oh my word. Besides that, we've caught him in the temple profaning it and we wanted to judge him according to our law, which really that's just a nice way of saying we want to kill him. So now it's your turn. And now look at what he says, but in verse 7, but the commander, Lysias, he came by with a great violence, took him out of our hands. Almost like with a poochy lips, you know, like, but that Lysias, he came along and he took him away from us. Oh, the poor little babies, right? It's not even true. We've already read how this commotion occurs and Lysias comes down and takes him and then allows Paul to to give testimony to them, right? We've already heard of how they're having to lift him up to carry him through because the crowd wants to kill him. And they're describing it as like, oh, we were just going to deal with him according to our law. But, but he came, the meanie came over there and took him away from us. Now, if you recall, letters already been sent by Lysias. So uh, Felix should already know from his vantage point what happened. He's able to, to look between those and say, ah, <laughs> this is what my guy's saying and you guys are telling me what? <clears throat> and so he says, um, he took him out of our hands. He commanded his accusers to come to you and by examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. 
And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So, hey, we've got witnesses. Hey, this is right. Looks bad for Paul, doesn't it? Well, Paul begins his defense then in verse 10. Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Insomuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. At this point in time, um, Felix had been there for about seven years, roughly. He understood. He had been a part of that community and had governed in that area and understood some of their culture. He actually is married to a Jewish woman. So he has some, some understanding. So Paul recognizes this and speaks towards that. But he says, um, <clears throat> uh, because you may ascertain this, no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things which they now accuse me. So Paul cuts right to the matter. Oh, this is what they're saying I'm doing? Let me tell you, it's not true. It's not true in the synagogue. It's not true in the city. This wasn't happening. This is how they found me. And he lays that uh, argument out for, uh, for Felix. But he says then in verse 14, but this I do confess to you. So I'm not guilty over here. Serious charges again could cost him his life. He's saying it's not true, guys. This is what was happening. But now Paul takes a step forward in the gospel. He could have easily just stopped right there and said, it's not true. They don't have any way of proving that. We're going to get into this a little bit more later on here, but he's going to accuse them further of how they're handling this. He could have just stopped right there. But he recognizes that God's in control. That his story, is that upside down? That his story is one that's going to speak of the Lord. So he's looking for the opportunity. I love this. I don't know about you, but there's many times when I have been engaged with a person, I've left them, and then I've gone, ah, oh, man, I should have talked to them about the Lord. I should have said this, or I should have said that. Why? Because my mind is not on that. It's not thinking of that. It's thinking of my circumstance. But as we see this happening with Paul, we can gain great confidence that God is going to be at work in our lives. And maybe there's a number of times when we fail to do that, but those begin to build up to the point where we start thinking about this. And then God puts us into a situation and then says, child of mine, say it. Speak up. Tell them about what I've been doing in your life. And use what I've been doing in your life to lead them to what my word says about me and lay it out before them. And trust me to be at work. We're going to see all of that happen here. Watch, right? So he says, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Now, now Felix should have had some understanding of this, even if it was just from his wife. Some, some level of, okay, I know, I know what you're talking about. We're going to find him come back multiple times to gain more on this though. But Paul lays this out. And then he says in verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. If you remember, 
Earlier on, when Paul was brought into the council to these very elders and to this very Ananias, he actually said something similar to this. I have a clear conscience before God. Do you remember this? And Ananias said, strike that guy in the mouth. And he said, how dare you accuse me? You're sitting in judgment of me. How dare you accuse me of something and then cause me to be stricken, which is against the law. You remember that? He said a few different words, like you whitewashed sepulcher kind of thing. And they said, what? You realize you're talking to the high priest? Oh, <laughs> no, I don't, right? But these are the same words that Ananias gets bugged about and says, let's hit him, because this isn't true. But Paul's not relenting. He's not going to let that truth go. Why? Because it's important to his testimony. There's something that's going on. Look at these verses here. He says in verse uh, 15, or 16, this being so, I myself also always strive to have a conscience. In other words, it's because of something that this is how I live. Let's back up. Verse 15, I have hope in God. Why? Because there will be a resurrection of the dead. There's something that's driving him. There's something that's motivating him. I'll just tell you as I read this, um, and studied this, I was probably more focused on the whole history and the story of it, and especially um, the sovereignty of God and how God was orchestrating things. And I finished all my notes and I was ready to go and it was like, hey, let's all get together. I'm ready, you're ready, let's all get together. And then it just began to bug my mind, this concept of the resurrection. I couldn't let it go. So I went back and I began to study a little bit more of that. Do you know that this word is not found in the Old Testament? If you look it up, if you do a little word search, and I would encourage you to do this, if you look it up, you won't find it in the Old Testament. Oh, you'll find allusions to it. Do you remember in the Gospels, here's an example of that, in the Gospels, the Sadducees asked the Lord, hey, there's this guy and he was married and then he died and then his wife became the wife of his brother and now the brother and there's seven of them. Do you remember that story? Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Now there are Sadducees, if you recall, didn't believe in a resurrection. So they're asking him something that they don't actually believe in. It's kind of like, yeah, well, we're going to trick you. We'll get you, buddy. Like, tell us here, figure this one out. And the Lord is so gracious, but so wise. He says, you guys, you're, you're, you're wrong. You err. Because you don't know the scriptures. Don't you know that in scripture it says that he is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob? He is a God of the living, not of the dead, is what he says to him. You should have caught that, in other words. Like Abraham is not dead. Oh, his body's in the grave. But he's not gone. He's not disappeared. Right? He's waiting. Waiting for the Lord. Isaac... Jacob, I'm the God of the living, not of the dead. And so he says, you guys got the scriptures wrong. You don't even understand. So there's an allusion to the, uh, uh, um, uh, to the uh, resurrection, right? But when we get to the New Testament, then we find multiple places. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you start out there, it gives us the gospel in the first few verses. And then it starts talking about the resurrection. Are you familiar with this chapter? If not, again, afterwards, just go read it. It's just reeking of the resurrection. Can you say that when you say the resurrection too? Reeking of it. It's oozing. Right? It's just coming out. Just pouring out. Just read it. You'll see it. Oh my word. And Paul is there telling these uh, believers, these Corinthian believers, listen guys, if Christ has not raised from the dead, we're the most miserable people. 
If this is not true, what in the world are we doing? How in the world would we live if this were not true? It would just be eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. That's just how that goes. Why would it matter what your story is if we all are just going to the grave and that's just the way that it is? <clears throat> and he lays out his argument for the resurrection and how it ought to impact our lives. And he says in verse 58, be ye therefore, like in light of that, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. He motivates. He says, this is true, therefore it ought to affect you. Now, just so you know, when he says, <clears throat> be steadfast, what he's talking about with that word is steadfast in the faith. Notice I said in the faith, I didn't say in your faith. Be steadfast in the faith. All that, remember he said, in the way, he used that term, in the way, it's how we go. It's, it's, it's talking about all of what we believe. That would be another way of saying the faith. This is, this is what the word of God teaches. <clears throat> so he's saying in light of the resurrection, you be steadfast. It's literally be becoming in other words, it's a process that you're, that you're involved in all the time. Be becoming steadfast, locked in. This is what the Word of God says. And I'm going to plant on that. Ooh, aren't you glad I'm not that much closer? I'm going to plant on that. There's a, there's a solidness. Don't you like it when Jim pulls out his rock? It's not the rock that he's trusting in. It's just something to remind him. I stick my hand in my pocket and I'm feeling this rock. And oh, that's right. I've got the rock. And I'm steadfast. I, you know that the scripture tells us like in Ephesians, it says, therefore, stand. Having done all to stand. When it talks about putting on the armor of God. Why? Because it's not so much that it's in our strength and it's our fight. It's his. And so... If we're going to be steadfast, the resurrection is going to have an impact on us. It's going to drive us to the word so that our roots are dug in. He says, be steadfast. And then he says, be immovable. That word immovable is talking more about like the persecution that we face or the temptations that we face to be immovable, to realize that the things that are coming at us, whether they're, they're persecution or whether they're struggles of temptation, no matter what, we want to stand. Why? Because we have hope in God. We have a trust in him. I illustrate this just, I don't have time to talk all about the different things of the resurrection, but one of the things that the scripture tells us is that this body that I have, this is a corruptible body. It's falling apart. That's why I have glasses, because I can't see near as well as I used to be able to see. My wife thinks I actually don't hear as well as I used to hear, but I think that's the way she talks sometimes. But she's here, so I can't really argue that one too much if you follow my eyes. It's just the way that goes. I got a bum knee now, right? I'm a little overweight. There's just too many things going on. But the Bible tells me that this corruptible body will be changed to an incorruptible body. This one's not designed to last for forever. So how does that affect me? Oh, my word. Oh, I'm going bald. Oh, this is terrible. 
all men know that you shouldn't be going bald because somebody in our culture said you shouldn't be going bald. So now I got to do something about all that. Or I live realizing, yeah, I need to kind of take care of this because it's my vessel. It needs to kind of get me through what I'm doing here on this earth. But it's not going with me. So it's not what I worship. It's not what I hang on to. And you can replace that with all kinds of stuff. You can talk about anything in this world and realize it's staying and it's burning. But the day is coming when it's going to be everybody out of the pool and we're going home with them. We're out of here. It changes. Sorry, I just... I see some people around here who have lost loved ones. And it's hard in their heart. But you know what? They're going to see them. You talk about an effect on the way that you live. Sometimes we get so caught up in the sorrow, and I'm not saying we shouldn't sorrow. The scripture says we don't sorrow as those who don't believe. We sorrow, but it's not the same. Why? Because we get to see them again. And there's something about that. Our loved ones who've gone on to be with the Lord are in his presence. They are home. You and I are not. We're off in some colony called earth living here. But the day will come when he'll give that trumpet. It won't be a whistle. It'll be a trumpet. Y'all are out of the pool. Come on home. Here we go. And we're on the way now, right? So he's laying this out. He says, I have hope in God. That's something that we want to trust God to continue to reveal to us to help us with this same kind of thinking that Paul has so that when we are in moments like he is in, we're willing to transfer that and say, oh, I'm not just defending myself. I want to witness to you. And so Paul does. And I am way over time. So here we go. I always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God. Now, after many years, verse 17, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. So if you remember, he had come, the elders of the church had said, hey, Paul, we got four guys. This is what they're doing. We want you to join them in doing that. We want you to pay for that. Everybody will know everything's good with Paul. So get to it, right? Do you remember that? That's Tim's summation. Do you remember that the scripture says that it was seven days of purification and it was towards the end of them that all this happened? It's almost like, hey, we're almost done with this. Woo, we're getting by with it, right? No. Coincidentally, at the end of it all, the whole thing blows up. Isn't that something? Do you ever find that? you ever find that just at what you think is the most inopportune time, God allows something to happen in your life? And you go, what's up with that, God? You might not say it exactly that way, but that's really what you mean. What are you doing? It's like, hey, do you know what you're doing? Oh, we would, <laughs> we would not say that to him, right? Because you get lightning bolt stuff for that one. So we just say, question, just a question. Just ask, just wondering. Somehow we think that if God will tell us what he's doing, that'll make it better for us, right? Somehow we believe that when God tells us, I have found that when he tells me what he's doing, then I critique that. And I tell him how he ought to be doing it. Well, in that case, Lord, this is the way you should have done that. And maybe Paul, like, what? I'm going to Rome? 
I thought I was going to be paying for a ship. I thought I was going to go there and the brothers are going to be hanging out with me and they're going to pass me on to Spain. This is going to be so cool. No, 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 Paul. You're going on my dime, my way. Here we go, right? He says they ought to have been here, these witnesses. If this is true, they ought to have been here. Now let me tell you something. Felix was in a position and he knew how to handle that position. And he knew what the Roman law was. And the Roman law said a Roman couldn't be accused without witnesses. And guess what? They're not there, according to this statement. Where are these? They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. The ones that Lysias has said, you guys go down and present your accusations to to Felix. They're not even there. That should have been thrown out. What? We don't have the witnesses? Done. But you know what? God's a sovereign God. We like that when things are going well, don't we? Or we like that when we want for him to do something for us. But it's harder for us to accept when things are going south, when they're going off the rails. Wait a minute here. I don't know if I like this. But God is in control. And that can bring a rest to the heart. But it only brings a rest to the heart when we trust him. And we will only trust him if we think that he's trustworthy. And the only way we'll get to know if he's trustworthy is when we get to know him. And guess what we find? He not only shouts it out from his word, but he takes us through all kinds of circumstances to help us to learn this. I've alluded to this before. But Sue and I, about 15 years ago, were in a situation where we felt like we were being falsely accused. We thought the answer to this is to explain the truth. Once they hear the truth, they'll think differently. It seemed like the more we tried to explain that, the more they accused us of being defensive and the more trouble we got ourselves into. So finally, we just zipped our lips. We're just not going to say anything anymore because we're just digging a hole for ourselves. And we left it. Years have gone by. And God in his grace has allowed us to kind of look back into some of that and actually see the hand of God there. It's not exactly like, you know, uh, um, Joseph with his brothers. You know, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good kind of thing, right? But we can see some, what we think is evil that went on. And now seeing, oh, but God meant it for good. That's been almost 15 years that have gone by since, since that event. We're learning, but you know what, people? We could have trusted him back there. And I'm not saying we totally didn't trust him. I'm just saying maybe we could have trusted him more back then. We could have, because of what we knew about him, because of what his word said to us, we we could have had a heart totally at ease. Wasn't always that way. But we're learning, right? We're all on that journey. We're, we're gaining some understanding of this. And so he says they ought to be here, but they aren't. And that, that, this case should have been kicked out, but it wasn't. Why? Because God is in control. Because God is doing something here that we have the privilege of, of submitting our will to. Let's keep going here. Verse 20. Or else, if that's not true, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Okay, if, that, if, that, if they're not here to, to do that, they're, they're accusing me of something here, but I'll open the door a little wider. Hey, these boys are here. I stood in front of them. I talked to them. What did they find? Give testimony to this. 
this is true, lay it all out here, right? Unless it's for this one statement, which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged by you this day. You see how Paul just weaves that right back in? He, he's just, Lord, I just, I want to talk to them. I want to tell him about you. And he just weaves in this, this resurrection. So what happens then in verse 22, when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I'll make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So, so he's hearing some of this stuff and, and he's learning about this, but he decides, I'm going to defer judgment. Wrong. When Lysias comes down, that, that's when I'll decide. No, Lysias had already written a, a, a testimony to him. He had already told him what had happened. He had already said, I don't find any reason why this guy ought to be held or killed or anything like that, right? So he already had that testimony. He didn't need any of it. He should have kicked the whole thing out, but he didn't. And again, what are you going to do? Put yourself in Paul's shoes and then apply this same thing to your life today. What, what are you going to do? When his situation, there wasn't a whole lot he could do in the sense of physically change it, but there's a whole lot that he could do here, right? And here, his thinking was going to affect him. Trusting God means that I need to know who he is and I put my faith in him. We've already done that for our salvation, but what about for our lives? Is he who he says he is? And is my life story something that proclaims who he is? But God is gracious, and God motivated him to say, you know what, he, we're going to keep him, but you allow his friends to engage with him. They brought nourishment to him. I don't know if you knew this, but in many places in the world, if you're thrown in jail, they don't provide you a meal like our country does. I don't know if you know that. So family has to, every day, bring a meal in. And sometimes it gets to the prisoner, and sometimes it doesn't. Well, they were allowed to bring that to him. But more important than that, they were, they were allowed to bring spiritual nourishment to him. Encourage his heart. God was keeping him in this situation, but God wasn't leaving him alone. He brought others of the body to engage with him. <clears throat> and so it says then in verse 24, After some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was, a Jew, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Tell me about this. There it is. Now the door's kicked wide open. How amazing is this? Now as he reasoned, that's Paul, he reasoned about three things. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have con a convenient time, I'll call for you. What Paul was speaking to him was having a convicting uh, effect on him. It convicted him so much at this one, he became afraid. And, well, you can't show that, right? So like, okay, okay, time's up. You need to go. I'll, I'll call you. We'll talk about this later when, when we have some more time. But off you go. <laughs> Why? Because something was happening here. These words tell us, <clears throat> it says he was, he was reasoning with him about righteousness, about self-control, and about judgment. You know what the scripture tells us? Scripture says in John chapter 16 that the Spirit of God will convict the world, that's believer, or unbelievers, sorry, it'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's what he does. So here's Paul engaging with an unbeliever, and what does Paul do? 
he knows this is how the Spirit of God is at work in the life of an unbeliever. I'm going to engage in that realm. He talks with them. He reasoned with them about righteousness. This Drusilla, she had been married to another guy. And Felix, come with me. Leave your husband. Come with me. Oh, I'm better looking. I got more money. I got more power. Whatever. Ditch him. Come with me. Living in sin. Right? And he's talking about righteousness. <gasps> There's the gasping of the breath. He's talking about self-control. Oh, no. Selfishness was in control. But self wasn't in control. Right? You talk about judgment to come. Hey, there's consequences for that. God won't be mocked. Whatever a person sows, that's what he will reap. That's what the word of God says. So don't be fooled into this stuff. No wonder the guy was afraid. And so he says, go away. It tells us in verse 26, Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. What? You came down to Jerusalem to bring this, these gifts to them? You must have money. What about Greece and some of me? Hey, gimme, gimme, right? A perversion of justice. Oh, our world right now is all into injustice and, uh, you know, social justice and rising up against it all. And, we're, you, you know, we live in this, uh, like, you got to have your own back because no one else will. And I challenge you, where does the Word of God talk about that? What I find is that the Word of God talks about God having our backs, about Him being in control. And even when the circumstances of life don't appear to be so, we don't have to walk by appearance. We get to walk by faith and not by sight and trust Him. Lord, I don't know why I got passed over in that job promotion. Lord, I don't know why I'm sick all the time. Lord, I don't know why you took my loved one. Lord, I don't know why, but I'll trust you. You're worth that because you're trustworthy is what you are. And so it says, um, therefore he sent for him more often, conversed with him. Paul had opportunity together with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix and Felix went, uh, wanted to do the Jews a favor. He left Paul bound. Why? Why did he want to do a favor? Because he was being recalled because the Jews had complained to Caesar about him and he's in trouble. And so he's thinking, hey, if I do this, then those boys will be a little bit happier with me and maybe they'll put in a good word for me and I won't get my neck wrung. This pure, simple selfishness is all it is. But it's because of selfishness on the part of the one who's making the decision that God's will is actually being brought about. Isn't that hard to accept? Isn't that hard for us to think about? That it's, it's degradation, it's sin, it's, it's things that go bad that God sometimes uses. Do you realize, in some sense, Paul is in the predicament that he's in because the church elders told him what to do. Good, godly wisdom and decision-making doesn't always mean things turn out good. God has his way, and God knows. And maybe Paul was sitting there going, what? Two years have gone by? What a waste of my life. Oh, but it's not. It's not been a waste because it has an impact on us. It's not been a waste because historically we believe that Luke was gathering a lot of his material during these two years. 
things were happening. But whether we can see it or not, we know the one who has it all in his hand. And we get the privilege, people, we get the privilege of trusting him for these things, right? So we want to keep encouraging each other. We want to be looking into the word and we want to be reminded, God, what have you been doing in my life? What is it in my life that speaks about you that I could share with somebody else that they might come to know you? And they might react just like Felix. Uh, Go away, right? Or they might respond to that. This guy kept coming back for more. We have no clue what happened to him as far as the gospel is concerned. You might see him someday on the park benches of heaven. There's probably a pretty good chance that you won't, though, because there's people who reject. Because God's sovereignty is not such that he forces them to trust him, but he invites them, and he wants to use you to do that very thing in their life. Let's pray. Father, oh, wow, what a packed chapter this is. And the picture that you paint is vivid for us. It's like we're sitting in the jury box and we're listening to the testimony. But Father, sifting through all of that, what comes out is um, a mighty hand that you have. I know, I know a little bit about my own frailties and I think that these guys have the same kind of things that I do, Lord, and we have a hard time learning things, don't we? Seems like we kind of get a taste of it, but then we forget real quick. And we're just so thankful that you keep reminding us, children, I'm in control. I'm in control. Trust me, rest. That there's a heart that we would be steadfast, immovable, that we would always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain, It's not foolishness that we're doing here with our lives. You're worth trusting. So I pray you'll keep convincing us of this and that we would be filling out this paper of our story, that we would see your hand in filling that out and we would have the great uh, thrill of sharing that with other people. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.